But if you had someone on the team that's from that culture, they would go, can we ask him like how he got let in the house, how he got to talk to a girl alone, like some other details that might help you to understand whether this was true or whether, because of course, somebody might be very persuasive and have great access, but somebody might also be making it up. Many newsrooms recognize they have a diversity problem, and some are dragging their feet when it comes to making the necessary changes. Not only will a more diverse newsroom help remove bias from your stories, it may also improve the accuracy of your reporting. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Tina Lee is the head of the Ambassador Program at HostWriter. She's also the editor-in-chief of a new book, Unbias the News, Why Diversity Matters in Journalism. Welcome to the podcast, Tina. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So I usually like to start these interviews out by finding out a little bit about the background of our guests. So tell me about your career. How did you end up at HostWriter? What's your journalist journey? Well, as you can tell from my accent, I am from the United States originally, but I'm living here in Berlin, Germany now. And I actually went to law school in D.C., outside of D.C. and Catholic University. And after law school, I graduated at possibly the best time ever to graduate with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, which is 2008, (laughs) financial crisis. (laughs) So um, I decided maybe it wasn't time to try to enter the lawyer job market because basically everyone had reneged on all of their offers. So I decided to keep on going into school and did a international um, master's. And basically was always focusing on migration. And on that topic, which I then moved to Europe to um, work on a little bit more, you get a lot more done kind of in journalism than as a lawyer (laughs) at the moment. So I was here basically during this European migration so-called crisis with the refugee system under pressure in Europe, which is still going on. And because I was here during that, I ended up covering it more, much more often as a journalist or as a human rights activist than as a lawyer could do. And I worked a little bit for Human Rights Watch. I worked for various other outlets, but I was mostly a freelance journalist covering topics of migration and law until I applied to kind of a side job just to also be a little bit more stable at HostWriter, which I didn't get. But then I got called back a year later to help run their ambassador program. The second I got in there actually was the year that they won the Google Innovation Prize, which is a um, $250,000 grant for innovative projects. So it was like I was I walked in there basically a week after they had won it. So everyone was congratulating me and I was like, cool, I don't know what this place is yet, but really happy that we won this big prize. So what is HostWriter's mission? So HostWriter is a organization that exists to help journalists easily collaborate across borders. And probably people listening to this podcast who work for big media organizations, they're familiar with people who do foreign correspondent jobs or who go and do foreign trips. You have a team of fixers, you might have an AP, you might have a lot of people working to help your trip so that you can do your job more easily. But people on the lower end of the spectrum, freelance journalists journalists, or people just starting out, often don't have access to that kind of team. So they have to do it themselves. So that means they might need help with things like accommodation. They might need help with things like translation. They might need help getting the lay of the land. So if you join HostWriter, which is free for every journalist to join, you kind of offer that you'll help people collaborate. And the reason for that is reciprocity. Someone comes to DC for a big summit. Maybe they want to stay on your couch Maybe they need some help figuring out what's going on, understanding how the legislature works. Maybe they just want to chat about something you have some expertise in. And you would offer to do that with the understanding that in the future, if you go to Madagascar, Nepal, 
India or one of the 150 countries that are members of Hostwriter, that you could also call someone up and say, hey, can you help me get the lay of the land here, figure out what's going on? I'm here for a story. Cool. That sounds like a, a pretty neat organization and something really kind of useful and smart, which is kind of nice. So Hostwriter also has other projects, one of which is this book that you edited, The Unbiased the News, Why Diversity Matters in Journalism. How did the, this book come about? So basically, as I said, we, you know, we were helping people work across borders. And one of the things that we really try to encourage people to do, because there's a lot of privilege inherent in how borders work already, right? Because I'm from the United States, it's easy for me to go almost anywhere in the world if I want to do a story. But that's not true for lots of people. They can't just hop on a plane and come to the United States. There's a Muslim ban. There are other places where they won't get let in because people assume they want to migrate or something. There are journalist visas, but who gets those visas are really unfair in a way, or can be very unfair. That means that not everybody gets to tell the story in the same way, even though we might have all the same interests. So we already recognized that while we're on this topic of cross-border journalism, and it got us thinking, what other kinds of borders exist that are not just physical borders, like national borders? Like, you know, looking at the kind of things that exist that separate people in the newsroom, whether it's gender race, religion, caste, age, class, there's all these sort of things. And when you look at newsrooms, a lot of times you tend to see quite a few of the same people represented. They tend to be older white men that dominate most newsrooms, not universally, but most places. And you tend to see fewer people from different backgrounds that aren't, you know, represented so uh, much in leadership positions. And we think that that creates a problem because it has an influence on what kind of stories are told. And it's not that white men can't do this job or that older men can't do it or that you know older white women can't do it, but it does influence what kind of stories get left out if it's most the same people. And here in Germany, we had a really good example of that recently, which was kind of a scandal. Maybe you heard about it, the Klaus Relocius case. I'm not familiar with it. Some of our listeners might be, but could you go into it? Well, he's a really famous um, writer for Der Spiegel and has been an award-winning journalist. And he came to the United States to cover Donald Trump and to cover sort of the crisis at the border. And he more or less fabricated a story. He used really fake details. He had fake interviews. It was a beautifully written piece, but quite a lot of it was fabricated. And this article was in German. So, of course, the American people that he profiled weren't like going to go to the Spiegel and read the German part. But there was another journalist on the team that kind of suspected that something might be wrong. He brought it up to other journalists and they're like, what? This guy's an award-winning famous journalist. Like, there's no way. But he started to go through more of the, the journalist's old pieces. And it turns out this guy's been fabricating tons of stuff for years, just making things up completely, faking interviews, faking access. I mean, also to the effect that these were really beautiful pieces where he had like amazing insight, but they were not journalism. They were fiction. And part of the reason that I think that that happened, but I think plenty of people also think that happened is no one really questioned him because he was in an office with a lot of people that looked and thought the same way that he did and just wouldn't have even questioned it. And when he started to get questioned, it was by someone who was from a different background who said, how did he get access to talk to these people in a language he doesn't even speak? How did he get access to go behind these barriers? It just doesn't make sense to me. So it took someone from a different background to question it. And we think that that's why also having a more diverse newsroom is not just a question of you know, fairness, but it's also a question of accuracy. It's a question of fact-checking. 
And that's an interesting story. You know, it's a bad story for a lot of different reasons. It, it doesn't, I mean, it, it doesn't reflect greatly on the author, of course, but also the for the newsroom for not picking up on this and just sort of continuing to publish that work without really kind of questioning it. I used to talk to this one editor that I had about the movie Shattered Glass about, um, oh, what's his name? The the guy who fabricated all the stories for the National Review. And, you know, sometimes that's a, that's kind of a horror story for editors. You kind of... <laughs> you trust that a, a journalist is going to bring you accurate and true information. And if you're not questioning it, but the fact that here you have a, uh, somebody in the newsroom who has a different perspective, who is willing to question, you know, that I think it's a great example of, you know, why it's important to have different types of people in the newsroom and not just to trust <laughs> everything that you get, you know, question everything you get. Well, the question is also, are you always in a position to question what you receive? Because if you have no, if there's sometimes that you just don't see something because you're not from that background. One of the authors in our book, Emran Faraz, who is Afghan-Austrian, he writes about war correspondence in Afghanistan. And he would read stories by journalists that he had seen and know there's no way that they went into someone's house, talked to their 14-year-old daughter and got this soundbite out of her in Arabic. There's just no way. Or in Urdu. It's just impossible that someone was able to get this conversation because some in our culture, they wouldn't have let you into the house. They wouldn't have let you talk to your daughter alone. And also this guy doesn't speak the language. So how does he write this story? So these are also things that the editor might be like, wow, what a great insight. This is so cool. But if you had someone on the team that's from that culture, they would go, can we ask him like how he got let in the house, how I got to talk to a girl alone, like some other details that might help you to understand whether this was true or whether, because of course somebody might be very persuasive and have great access, but somebody might also be making it up. Yeah. And you bring up an interesting point about kind of the structure of a newsroom. There are stratas, obviously, you know, management stratas where somebody who's been around a while, who's, who's in charge of certain things, has, has a degree of experience. And there's, there's, there's some deference, I guess, uh, from people who are new or, at a different level so that you sort of trust what that person is, is doing. And, and, you know, we talk about diversity in newsrooms a lot about, we always kind of talk about like, you know, race and gender, but we don't always, in age to a degree, we're not always thinking about, you know, people coming from different, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds, different types of life experiences so that they have a completely different perspective. And, you know, that's sort of that, that richness that that can bring in a, in a newsroom that you don't always have. I mean, so, you know, so so often you've had newsrooms that, you know, the hierarchy is filled with the same type of people from the same type of background that went to the same type of colleges, the same type of work experiences. And the fact is they may not be covering uh, <laughs> those exact same people out in the real world. They're, they're covering people with different experiences. And what tends to happen is you, you, you tend to do sort of, you know, you do the comfortable things. You go talk to the sources you're comfortable talking to. Absolutely. I mean, you even see in terms of just the class issue, think about the way that issues that primarily affect poor people are covered, the ways that issues that primarily affect, for example, sex workers are covered. Often when sex workers are murdered, it's not even in the newspaper, really. And that's like an issue of, I mean, but you know, if there would be a non-sex worker woman who's kept, who's killed, it would be you know, in the crime section, but it's often not even covered because it's considered sort of part of the job or something that has to do with a sexist lens, but it's also a class lens and issues that pertain to like public transportation and things that like that, they often don't get covered in the same way because maybe the journalists don't use public transportation. 
these are the kinds of issues where it really pays to have people on your team because even though it might not affect you, it affects people in the community that are reading your paper. And that's a question of trust. Whether they get news that's actually useful and affects their lives also depends on whether or not they see their life reflected in what is considered news. Right. You know, a sex worker is killed and, you you know, an editor might say, well, you know, you kind of expect that if that's a life, you know, this person chose to live. But because you don't have, uh, you know, a window into that life in that that sex section of um, of the community, you know, you may not know what be made her make those him or her to make those decisions. Um, so, again, I mean, you see the same thing with migration, yeah. right? The way that the migration crisis was covered in Europe, they used words that describe natural catastrophes, right? They use wave, tsunami, um, you know, earthquake of migrants. And if someone from migrant background was actually working in your newsroom, they might say, do you realize these are like individual people and not some natural disaster that you're describing. Maybe we can think about focusing on the individuals, which also gives the reader a different view on what's happening. And that's a great example, because if you're talking about, oh, my God, there's a there's a wave of immigrants coming in, crashing under our shores, overwhelming us. I mean, you've already you're already sort of couching it in particular political terms. And by not reflecting those people as individuals who have their own unique stories and, you know, maybe there's there's something that your readership can identify with in their story to how they, you know, got to this place. That's a better way, you know, more neutral way, more sympathetic way uh, to report that story. Exactly. And I think that you, you'll find that the way that, for example, people who voted for Donald Trump or people who are members of white nationalist movements get reported in the U.S. media where they really get a lot of care and attention. What led them to this decision? Well, how did they grow up? What is their background that would make them behave this way? That's not how we treat people from other groups, right? And I think that there might be a reason for that. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, wow, you know, the Johnny, you know, the kid Johnny who grew up in the, went to the same high school as my kid, you know, he obviously must have, you know, watched too many video games or, or played too many video games and watched the wrong types of movies and, and whatnot. And anyway, but to circle back, Unbiased the News, tell me about this book and what you were hoping to accomplish with it. So basically, when we thought about these barriers that we were talking about, we started to get really excited about like what barriers we can't see. Because this question of us, for for example, just visa regulations, how that was inhibiting the work of journalists, like something we hadn't really thought about that became really clear when we sort of organized a conference and had to set up all these visa, uh, get these visas for people. We were like, wow, we never even thought about how crazy that is for journalists from different countries that don't have the same access to travel as the rest of the world does, how much that can impact not just their work, but their ability to, for example, accept an award or get some kind of special training. So we were wondering, okay, what other kind of barriers do we not really think about that exist to making journalism more fair and equitable and also more accurate? So we decided to put out sort of a call. And we put this call out in, I think, seven different languages, asking journalists to contribute pitches for a paid short piece in a book about a barrier that they believe exists in journalism. We were trying to be as vague as possible, kind of, to not bias the results, right? So we got, I think, 300 different pitches from people all over the world. And people wrote in about things like caste, about sexism, about racism, about journalism school and how it's unfair, about how, you know, Ivy League schools get preference over others, about ageism, all sorts of topics, really, mental health, everything you can think of. 
And we also didn't want to be biased in the way we selected which stories were the most interesting for us because, you know, we're working in Europe. We have a sort of Western European slash American perspective on what is interesting and what's important. So to counter this bias, we also took on a team of regional editors that are host writer members and asked them to help us vote and select on the topics that were the most important. And since those guys come from all over the world, also the Philippines, Zimbabwe, Uganda, Brazil, we thought that that can help us lower the risk that we also just take stories which are only interesting for us, but that actually exclude stories which could be really important in those regions. So at the end, we had about 30 articles on topics from all sorts of different subjects. And that's what the book is. The book is about 30 different journalists talking about the blind spots, the barriers, discrimination, sometimes things that are really infuriating and heartbreaking, sometimes things that are kind of funny. And we just hope that people who read it will have their eyes open to things that they hadn't considered that are barriers to making journalism better than it is right now. I was really kind of surprised at the scope of the things that are being written about in this book. It's not just about gender. It's not just about, you know, race or multiculturalism. It's about all types of things that people encounter, all types of, of bias that people encounter in the newsroom, some of which, you know, are are managerial, some of which are procedural. You know, you mentioned trying to get visas or the the difficulty, you know, that people have in covering just in covering the news. Is there anything in particular that kind of surprised you or sort of stood out? There were a few that I was surprised by. And uh, I think that's what I like a lot about this book is that it's it's kind of um, wonky for journalists, I guess. <laughs> like it's really, it's kind of specific, like especially for journalists to be interested in. One was our contributor from Nigeria, Kolawole Talabi. He wrote about journalism grants and how there's this kind of vicious cycle. Because if you're a young journalist, especially if you're you know not from a super advantaged background, you need money to do investigative journalism, right? So how do you do it? You get grants. What do the grants want you to show? That you're going to publish in big name newspapers like in The Guardian or in Time Magazine or Newsweek. But if you're a young journalist just starting out, there's no way that The Guardian is going to take you on for your first project, right? So you're in this sort of catch-22 where in order to be able to get the grants that would enable you to do really good work, you would need to have already kind of done really great work that was already published, especially to be in something like The Guardian is something that like a young up-and-coming freelance journalist, that's a huge big deal that they can't dream of happening on their first piece. So that kind of thing, that that's a cycle that advantages people who are already in a position to actually be famous journalists to allow them to be more famous. That's one issue I thought was interesting that I hadn't thought of before. So, I mean, the book focuses a lot on unconscious bias, which, you know, I guess, you know... (laughs) I, I who, you know, that's an interesting phrase now that I think about it because, you know, who's out there is like, well, I'm going to be biased about this. I'm aware that I'm going to be, you know, prejudicing against somebody for this issue. But the fact is there are a lot of things that we do in the way we work that it would just never occur to us that this would create problems for other people. What are some of the examples of bias practices that, that are typical in the way that the journalist covers stories? There's a lot. Um, I mean, speaking to people that only speak your language. There's a couple of articles in the book about that. For example, one of our um, contributors, uh, Laura Vargas Parada, she writes about science journalism and how sometimes Latinx scientists are completely left out of big stories, big discoveries that they actually did. And she talks to some science reporters, also one from the New York Times, about 
so, okay, there was a big discovery in Mexico. It was actually by Mexican scientists, but you wrote the story and said that it was a bunch of, you know, American scientists that actually discovered it. Why? Well, you know, I talked to the guy that spoke English. Makes sense. It's not actually, you know, it's not ethically wrong, right? It's like, of course, I would rather speak to the person who speaks English rather than the person who doesn't. But what that ended up showing to the public is this was an American discovery when actually it was a joint discovery between Americans and Mexicans. And that creates a sort of representation issue, right? That we never see the Mexican scientists, we never see the scientists from Latin America that are really part of these projects. So again, that's not something that was intentionally bad, right? It wasn't someone trying, they were trying to do something on a deadline, they were trying to work fast. But what they ended up doing was skewing the story in a way. And another example is internet access. I think a lot of us tend to think of internet access as being this amazing thing that has made it possible for citizen journalism to take place for so many people all over the world to join into global conversation of the news and the media. But there's still some places where journal where internet access is really limited. So one of our authors, Priscilla Pacheco, writes about how she lives in the outskirts of Sao Paulo, Brazil. It's one of the biggest cities in the world. And where she lives, there's like 18 million people living, right? It's like already in itself a huge, huge group of people. But they get virtually no news coverage because of the fact that there's so little internet access there. It's really hard to do reporting nowadays if you can't upload pictures, upload interviews, so she has to basically take public transportation an hour and a half away from her home and go sit in a restaurant or something where there's Wi-Fi if she wants to send her stories. That's a huge barrier to being able to tell the news about a, you know, incredibly huge group of people, a population that essentially just doesn't get covered at all. If you're a reporter, you choose to live in the place with the internet access, right? So this is the kind of thing that I talk about, stuff we just haven't really thought about. Okay, what you said before about a reporter not, you know, reaching out to the the Mexican scientists because they don't speak that language. And one of the things you sort of said in there was like, you know, and, and then, you know, and they're on deadline. Sometimes I almost feel like the deadline tends to be a, an excuse for a lot of, of these things. We sort of wash over these things. Well, I can only talk to so many people on deadline. So I'm going to reach out to the people that I know can, I can contact. And I guess on one, one sense from a production aspect is like, yeah, okay, you got to meet, meet this deadline, you got to turn in your story. But in the other, it's like, you know, if that becomes your uh, de rigueur, the, the the way that you do your job, more often than not, you're going to create situations where you, you're just not taking that extra step. You're not pushing yourself. We've had conversations about diversity on this podcast before, and sometimes I feel that that's kind of the situation is, is that sometimes re reporters, you know, they get into this practice of not being as diligent as they really should be. And I think, you know, if you, you build a career like that, if, if that's the way you cover the news, then I think you, you create these situations where you know, bias can't occur because you're, you're not making the extra effort. You know, the, the journalism hard, is a hard job, but sometimes you need to make it harder for yourself in order for you to do good journalism, I guess. Absolutely. And I think that, I mean, there's two ways you could go, you could approach this question, this issue of the deadline being a problem. Question one would be, okay, push yourself, try to do better, try to think about these things, at least be aware of what you're leaving out. And if not that, hire someone in your newsroom that speaks Spanish. <laughs> then it doesn't matter if there's a deadline. You know, there are tons of Latino kids in the United States who want to do science journalism. If you're worried that you're going to leave out people, if you only speak English, hire people that are bilingual. It's very possible in the United States. And that's what I mean, is that either we can count on people from privileged communities to think about their privilege and to think about who they talk to, or 
we can make a more representative newsroom where it's automatic that people actually talk to people from their own communities and kind of know about these issues. Both things can occur, right? Right. Now, I was just at the Online News Association conference in New Orleans uh, a week ago. It was an interesting presentation. They were talking about diversity in stories. Diversity, obviously, in the newsroom, but also in the types of stories you cover. And then the representation of diverse people within your the story that you're writing. And one of the things that the presenter said is, you know, you really need to challenge yourself. If you, you go to a source and they give you a white male, they're always giving you a white male respondent so that all of your stories are the only people who are represented are white males or the only experts who, you know, you need to step up and, and challenge and say, hey, let's, you know, what other person can you give me? What other representation? And if the only people who are in your contacts list are, you know, this, uh, one community, one section of the community, maybe I look at that reporter's list and say, okay, what other people can I bring into this so that I can have a more diverse content or more, diver- more diverse representation in the stories that I'm writing? Absolutely. I mean, there was an article the other day on Medium. I can't remember who the author is right now, but she was talking about how if you want to check how inclusive your storytelling is as a journalist, look at your top six sources. Who are the top six people that you talk to for your stories? Are they all white? Are they all men? Are they all from the same socioeconomic background? That's already something you could check on yourself and see who am I talking to and who am I representing. But you could also join an organization like Hostwriter where you have the opportunity to check, for example, if you're doing any kind of international reporting. We in the United States, and I say we in the United States as if I live there, which I don't, but I noticed the coverage of the United States, for example, just to pick a random one, is the Michael Flynn issue. When the Michael Flynn case was being reported, there was a big Turkish aspect to that, right? Because what he was accused of was trying to pull somebody out of the United States and bring him to Turkey as part of a sort of agreement that he made with the prime minister there, Erdogan, they could have reached out to Turkish journalists a lot more than they did to find out like, what's the perception there of this. That is an interesting aspect of the story that wasn't really told. And that actually could have added some more color and more interest to the story, but also meant that you got something different than just what you're reading about normally. And these are the kinds of things. And there's so many issues where our stories do cross borders, but we don't actually reach out to journalists from those countries or to other people from those countries to get their perspective. And I think that that's another way in which instead of talking to example for a U.S. expert on China, that you talk to a Chinese expert on China, or you talk to a Russian expert on Russia, not a U.S.-based expert on Russia, these kind of things. And I get that it's so much easier to get in touch with someone who you've already talked to and who speaks English and who comes highly recommended. But I think you can get much more interesting stuff sometimes if you reach out beyond the sources that you usually talk to. Yeah, I know. I remember being the editor of a community newspaper. And one of the things that that frustrated me after a while was, you know, why am I always hearing the same people who are being quoted? Why, you know, aren't there any other people who have opinions or who are involved in these stories? Maybe it's our story choice. Maybe we just need to be reaching out more, doing a little more legwork to, to uncover these other, other sources. So, you know, what are, I and mean, when we sort of talked around this, but what are some of the other, you know, the strategies in a newsroom or, or journalists, individual journalists could use to improve the way they cover stories so that the stories are more diverse, that they're not sort of fostering bias in what they're covering? Well, I think a big part of things is being aware And you can't know about something that you don't know about. That's just a basic rule, right? That's like that Donald Rumsfeld quote, like there's no knowns and known unknowns. (laughs) So you don't know what you don't know about. So 
reaching out and talking to other people, reading our book and getting kind of an idea for some of the things that you might not have thought about, sort of the discriminatory, pra discriminatory practices or other issues that maybe would just pass you by because you wouldn't even know about them is one issue, talking to people from more different backgrounds. But also what we generally as a rule believe at Hostwriter, but it's also one of the articles in our book from Brigitte Efter, who's a journalist from Denmark and Germany, talks about collaboration. And collaboration is a really good way to kind of check your own biases. Um, I was recently in India and I met with a Muslim journalist there. And Muslims are kind of under pressure right now in India. There's a lot of discrimination. There's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of issues going on around uh, Hindus and Muslims at the moment in um, in India. And so I was asking her, is it difficult as for her as a Muslim woman to always get the interviews and to always talk with people? And she goes, well, yeah. And if people hear my last name, sometimes they don't want to talk with me. So that's why I always bring a Hindu journalist from another newspaper. And we're basically partners. We work for two different newspapers. We write in two different languages. We go to all events together and we cover them together. And that way, if there's some kind of religious issue, she can talk to them or I can talk to them. And that means we both get the story that we wouldn't have normally gotten because we might have been shut out a bit because of our backgrounds. So that's an example of basic collaboration, which allows you to have insight into another community, but also to check your own biases and to not use the excuse of, well, I couldn't talk to those people because they don't want to talk to me or they don't see me as one of their own collaborating with people can help you get around that. And we want to encourage people to collaborate as much as possible because we think that this old school style of sort of lone wolf journalism, protect your sources, can work really well for some people in some particular situations or parts of journalism, but is not really the way to go forward if you want to write better in-depth pieces. We need to collaborate with each other. The book is Unbiased the News, Why Diversity Matters in Journalism. Where can people find it? So we sell it on Amazon.com under Unbiased the News. You can also visit unbiasednews.org, which gives you more information. We're also selling it in German for those uh, listeners who speak German. And there'll probably be some other, uh, we have some other sellers. Our publisher, Corrective, is selling it as well. And you should anyways, if you're a journalist, check out our regular website, hostwriter.org, H-O-S-T-W-R-I-T-E-R.org, because right now we're having a award, which is open to apply for until October 31st. And it's either for the best story or for the best pitch for a story. And both of them are cash prizes. prizes, And the pitch prize is pretty much like a grant of a thousand euros for anybody from all over the world who wants to work on a collaborative cross-border piece together. Tina, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been great. Thanks a lot. And uh, yeah, hope to talk to you again. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. We also just posted the results of our online survey about journalism resources. Check out what tools some of our readers are using to make good journalism. Everyone who took our survey received a free It's All Journalism mug. If you'd like to score a mug of your own, take one of our surveys. Go to itsalljournalism.com to learn more. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>